Morning, everybody. Oh, I'm. Oh, there we go. Okay, there I am. All right. So good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'd like to say welcome to New City. I'd also like to say my heart is just full this morning. Um, anyone else? Like that worship service? That we just had, I'm talking about like three minutes ago, was amazing. And then, and then um, what Lisa presented, the opportunity we have to serve people in our city, and then the video about vocation of Hannah, like, wow. And um, I have to get up and preach now. <laughs> um, but my, my heart's already full. And um, like I said, I'm glad to be here. Um, we read from Esther chapter 1. And um, we actually are going to um, be beginning a new series on Esther um, today. And, um, you know, a little bit about the book of Esther. So it's one of of two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. So go women. And the, um, you know, the honor and the dignity and the value that, this, that God gives women throughout the scriptures is highlighted through this story. So I'm excited about um, getting into it for that reason. Um, and before I just jump right into the story that we read, I know it's all kind of abrupt and, and um, we're kind of, we just jump straight into uh, the verse in the middle of the story, characters we don't know and all that. I want to give a brief kind of Cliff Notes background to, to the book of Esther. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Then I'll say a quick prayer and then we'll like, Sprint. Um, So yes, so this book uh, of Esther is in the Old Testament. It was written approximately the year 470 BC. So it's 2,500 years old. That's a long time ago. Um, Think about it in this term, you know, so the U.S., has been a nation almost 250 years. So think 250 years, think 10 times longer than that. That's how far back we're going into human history. Um, The Jewish people are um, exiles. They have been taken captive after years and years and years of not worshiping God, but worshiping other idols and even getting so bad to where they're sacrificing their children to other idols. And the prophets warned them, God is going to, he's going to let other people take you captive. You're going to be exiles. That's what happened about a hundred years or so before this story happens. And they were initially taken over by Babylon. So I think it was like, you know, Israel was like a worm and then Babylon is a fish that ate them. And then a little bit after that, Persia came and they're the bigger fish and they ate Babylon. And that's kind of what's happened. This is, this is not taking place in Israel. This is a story that's taking place in modern-day Iran, or Iran, and uh, in a town that actually is still in existence today uh, in the same area. It's one of the longest inhabited cities in the history of our planet um, where this story took place. And one of the questions that this book, just by its nature, is asking is, does God work, is God at work in other places? Is God at work outside of just Israel? Because you've got to think at this time, Israel is where God's presence is. The temple in Jerusalem is basically God's office. 
That's where he works from. That's where he's worshipped. That's where uh, the, the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people, that was their center of their, uh, of their religion, their interaction with God. But this story takes place outside of Israel in a different nation when they're captives and exiled and dispersed throughout the world. Is God still at work? A few other things about the book. Um, Jews in particular love this book. This is one of the most popular um, books to Jewish people. It's read every year at the Festival of Purim, um, which is an annual festival that uh, they celebrate. And actually, as we get into the series, you'll learn more about that festival and what it's about. So it's loved by the Jewish people, but Christians in particular don't really know what to do with this book. Um, for the most part. Um, how many have ever been in a sermon series on Esther? Okay, we got a couple. Did you know that for the first 700 years of the church, um, the number of commentaries written on the book of Esther was zero? And then you come along, you, you come along to, uh, anyone ever heard of John Calvin? Uh, 1500s, one of the greatest theological writers. He's a pastor, speaker. We still quote him today. We have no recorded sermons that he preached from the book of Esther. Um, Martin Luther, heard of him? Yeah, same thing. No, he didn't, he didn't preach on it. But you know what? Here at New City, um, turn to Esther 1 1 because we're going <laughs> to. We're going to do a series on it. We are excited, and I love that we're excited to get uh, into books of the Bible. I love that about our church. And, and one of, honestly, one of the things about it is it's difficult to interpret. It is difficult to know what to do with it because one thing is it's a historical narrative. So it's not a morality tale. It's not saying do all the things that the characters do in the book. And trust me, if you try to do that, you're going to have some pretty messed up situations. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's history. It's, it's an actual event told as a story. And the way we learn from it, <clears throat> pardon me, the way we learn from it is not by looking, the points aren't laid out in the text. It's we put ourselves into the story and we ask the Holy Spirit, what are you showing us? What are you teaching us about this? And we as a church um, and the church worldwide believes that all scripture is God-breathed and given for Second uh, Timothy 3.16, it's given for instruction, for correction, for doctrine, um, so that we can be trained up. So um, the other thing we know is that all Scripture points to Jesus. And so as these truths, we find them out in this series. We're going to look to Jesus because that's where we're going to see these truths um, fulfilled. One last thing on the cliff notes is Esther is a very unique and peculiar book because of one other thing. God is absent. Esther is the only book of the Bible where God is not even mentioned. Not even once. There's not a word from God. There's not a prophecy from God. There's not a, you guys following? And you may read that and think, well, what is this doing in the Bible? I thought this was God's book, right? And, and what you will find out, I believe, as, you, as we go through it in the next few months, as you read it for yourself, is that it's a brilliant way that the author and that the Holy Spirit has caused us to read this in such a way where we begin to ask, where is God at work in this? And is God at work when he seems absent? Is God there when we don't see him and we don't know what his hand is doing and we don't know 
his plan is God still at work. That's why some people call the tagline of Esther God's perfect plan through imperfect people. Because we do see God at work as we read the story. So I want to jump to the first character that we get introduced, but I just want to say a quick prayer for us for the rest of this time. Um, Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you so much for this time of worship. Thank you for giving us a reason, a million reasons, a billion reasons to worship you, God. Thank you for your love, for your grace. God, thank you for your word. Pray that um, I would preach your word today humbly. I pray that you would speak through your word to our hearts. Prepare us to listen and hear and obey what you call us to. And do the work, Holy Spirit, that only you can do to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first character is Xerxes. Everyone say Xerxes. Xerxes. That's a fun word. Um, depending on the Bible you have, and if you need a Bible, we have some here, grab one. Depending on the translation you have, you may have a different name there, which would say King Ahasuerus. Um, I'm going to go with Xerxes because <laughs> um, I want to say it a lot. It's going to be easier, but that was his, that's a more popular name. That was the Greek name for him. That's how he's known throughout history. You've probably heard of him. Um, I'm not going to recommend it, but if you ever saw the movie 300, a bunch of guys with CGI muscles, you know, fighting to the death. Um, Xerxes was one of the key characters in that. He's a big figure in history. He reigned um, for about 20 years in like 485 to 465 BC. And, um, you know, the book just begins with him. It begins talking about Xerxes and about something Xerxes is doing. First of all, it talks about his reign. All right, so it says, this is the Xerxes who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Kush. I think I have a picture of the Persian Empire at this point. Um, so, it said, so see that green area? That's where Xerxes reigned, also known as the world <laughs> at, at this time. Most of the people on earth lived right there. That's where he reigned. So on the eastern side, you've got modern-day Pakistan. Um, and then on the western side, you got all the way down to Ethiopia, parts of northern Sudan, Egypt. All of that is where he reigned. And this is not a, a democracy, all right? He doesn't have a senate. He doesn't have elected officials. He reigned. He was king. He was the head honcho, the only person um, who had the most authority for this whole kingdom. And this is who we meet first is Xerxes. Next thing it talks about is his palace. They're in the citadel of Susa, which was the, um, uh, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. And it talks a little bit about his palace and how amazing it is. But what the, the story doesn't directly tell you is this is not his first palace. This is his backup palace. This is his winter palace. This is the winter capital for the Persian Empire where this, where this part of the story goes down. So we don't even hear about the big palace. Um, let's see. Okay, so this is the aerial view of Susa, where we're talking about. This is from 1930. So uh, this is the aerial view of Citadel of Susa. I want to go to the next one. This is some of the ruins from the big palace in Persepolis. So this is not Susa. This is their other main palace. I don't have a... Sorry, I, I wasn't able to take pictures of the Susa Palace. Um, no, but 
This is his wintertime palace because in, in the summer in Susa, it can get up to 140 degrees. But in the winter, it's pretty nice, and he's up on top of the hill, got his big palace. He's got great weather all year round. you got to think, it's 2,500 years ago, no AC. But this guy's so got it going on that he can have good weather no matter when he wants. Next thing it talks about is his posse, who's there around him. He's bringing in people. He's bringing in uh, the military officials, all the all the generals, all the military brass. He's bringing in um, uh, the, the princes, the nobles, the leaders, everyone from all across his 127 provinces. Those are who are visiting him. And why are they visiting him? They're visiting him because he's throwing a party. And um, this is not a simple dinner party. Um, this is, uh, you guys saw this, uh, verse 4, for a full 180 days... He threw this party. That's six months. <laughs> and, um, and so I doubt, I doubt that anyone took off work for six months for the party. They probably came in rotations, right? But he's, he's throwing this massive party to show off his wealth and his splendor, as verse 4 says. And then this party, this, and it's all expenses on him. How much does it cost? Uh, it's on Xerxes' tab. He's got it, right? And, you know... I, if you've ever thrown a dinner party, how many of you have done that? You have a few people over to your house, and then afterwards you just like want to fall asleep for three days, right? Well, you know what he does after his six-month party is he throws a banquet <laughs> for seven days immediately following. So we've got a seven-day banquet, and, and the first party was for all the, all the military, all the people in power, all the wealthy people, and this party is for everybody in the city of Susa, from the least to the greatest, from the poorest to the richest. Hey, that's cool, Xerxes. That's cool. We, that's, we can respect that, right? And if you study it, there's possi- they say that at least probably 15,000 guests for this seven-day feast. Maybe up to 50,000 people there. We don't know. But let's just say on the small side, a small, small seven-day party of 15,000 people. And um, the uh, ancient historians, the word that they would use for Persian banquets was mishta which the literal um, definition or the most popular definition of that is drinking party. So when you see banquet, um, it's not just a, a banquet like we would think. Or maybe it is. I don't know. It's a, it's a drinking party. That's what's going on here. And then the, as it describes what goes on in the party, it's like, it's like you're reading like someone who shows up and they're just like, their breath is taken away by how amazing it is. And it, and it says that they have blue cords and they have purple cords and, and they're hanging from, from, from silver rods on marble pillars. And here's the deal about that. So his curtains, um, you might be thinking, that, okay, yeah, big deal. <laughs> I don't care what his curtains are. Um, I can't even have curtains at my apartment. I have blinds and we have to turn them. <laughs> um, but no, so it, it, it's not like, like today where you want a certain color t-shirt, you just go buy it. Or you want something on your t-shirt, you get it made for you. No, this is, this is, it was expensive to get certain colors because they had to get certain dyes. And purple was the most expensive color. So you've got people who are showing up to this party who are, there's probably some people who are like, oh, that's purple. I've never seen purple before. And all his curtains are purple. And they're hanging on silver curtain rods. Um, this guy's got it going on, right? 
And uh, so 15,000 people there. We've got a seven-day party. We need a place for people to sit down, Xerxes. Where are we going to sit? Um, oh, we'll make couches. What are you going to make out of? Gold. <laughs> Gold and silver couches. Oh, Xerxes, we need somewhere to walk around on. We need a floor. What are we going to put the flooring down with? Uh, let's go with fine jewels, uh, mother of pearl, um, porphyry. Um, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds nice. I'd like to walk around on fine jewels. Um, Xerxes, how are we going to serve the wine? Let's make goblets of gold. Every single one of them should be unique, which they were. And some of those are still remaining to this day. What's the point I'm getting at here? This king, this first, first character that the Holy Spirit introduces us to, King Xerxes, we don't really have categories for this type of person in the world that we live in. I mean, we think in terms of richest person in the world, the richest man in the world. We think Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos worth over $100 billion dollars. And we think, wow, right? And then we think most powerful person on earth is usually the president or the, the leaders of these great countries. That's the most powerful. But imagine if those people were one person, right? Imagine that whole empire, all of this wealth, and the whole budget goes through him. Are you guys with me? He's a big deal. Actually, his... His uh, nickname and the inscription that still survives to this day, written about Xerxes. Let's see if I have it here somewhere in my notes. Uh, it's called the Diva inscription. It's been really important to archaeologists and historians. It says, I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries containing many kinds of men, king in this great earth far and wide. The king of kings, King Xerxes. And why is he throwing this party? There could be many motivations. There could be many reasons. Historians say, okay, maybe he's, his, you know, his father had lost the war to the Greeks and he was, um, now he was consolidating his power and convincing his nobles, we need to go back. We can beat him this time. We can go back. Maybe that was it. But, but we know that something that was at the root of it that the scripture tells us because we read it in chapter 1, verse 4 where it says, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. What Xerxes is doing in this beginning scene, the whole reason behind it is, look at my glory. Look at me. Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at my wealth. Look at this. I think of um, a quote from Anchorman. <laughs> hey, everybody. Come and see how good I look. <laughs> Which we laugh at because it's ridiculous. But basically, that's what's going on. Come and see my glory. I've got it, and I'm going to flaunt it. This is MTV Cribs times a million. Just like huge. What I'm getting at here is that everything in this first scene that Xerxes is doing is to show off his own glory, to show off how good and valuable and amazing he is. Okay, so they're at this party. What do they do? Well, it's a mishta, so they're drinking. <laughs> at this drinking 
party. And um, normally there's, there's Persian drinking rules where – here's the rules. You drink when the king drinks. You, whenever – you don't drink more, you don't drink less. But whenever the king raises his glass, you raise your glass and, and you toast. And that's generous enough. But this uh, scripture tells us that the king wanted to show off his liberality even with his wine. And so he said, you know what? For this party, no restrictions on the wine. Let it flow freely. Let everyone drink to their own desire. Um, basically, it's open bar, right? Um, so I don't know if you guys have ever been to like a work function or, <laughs> or like a wedding where it's open bar. Um, there's kind of like a time limit for a good reason, you know, because if you get like if you're in an open bar situation and it's past an hour and a half, like maybe to two. I know we got some people getting ready to get married. All right, listen to me. This is advice, right? <laughs> if you go past an hour and a half, past two hours, you need to cut that open bar off because things are going to get sloppy. <laughs> people are going to start breaking commandments. Like it's not going to be good. Am I right? Okay. And Xerxes is like, you know what? Open bar seven days. <laughs> 15,000 people on me. And uh, that's the next kind of scene that we are going to learn a little bit from this story. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, i.e., yeah, hammered, (laughs) i.e., buzzing real good or drunk, I don't know, because I know the exact level, but he was in high spirits. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Dizta, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Karkas, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So at day seven, high spirits, King Xerxes just has a, just a brilliant idea. Hey, you know what? Now that we're all t- toasty and all my military officials are around and everybody's drunk, now would be a great time to show off my smoking hot wife. <laughs> I think, I think... I think everybody will love it. It's not true, is it? I don't think Queen Vashti loved it. And so it says the Queen Vashti, and, and remember who we're talking about here. This is King Xerxes. What he says goes in the whole world. And Queen Vashti says to the most powerful man in the world, No. Now, here's the thing. We don't know all the particulars. We don't know why. We don't, we don't, oh man, we have an idea why, right? But we don't know why. Like some people, some people have said that, that King Xerxes was actually asking her to show up wearing only her royal crown. But that's debated. I don't think that's easily proved. Um, the one that makes more sense to me is that royal women in this time and in this culture, they wouldn't show their faces in public. They would ride around in carriages that were covered. They wouldn't show their faces to anyone who wasn't part of 
um, the king's court or the king himself. And so what I line up with is that Vashti refused to degrade herself in front of 15,000 drunk people. Mm -hmm. And so she refuses. And I think she did the right thing. I think she should be commended by that. And I think that one of the um, sobering um, points that we learn from this and from human history is that she suffered for doing the right thing. That when we do the right thing, we don't always get rewarded. But she did make a choice and she stood up to an, an abusive power, something that was inappropriate. But what I want to look at here in Xerxes' life is what does love look like to Xerxes? Because we don't have a definition of it. He doesn't say anything about it. But we see how he treats his queen. Not as um, a soul to be cherished, made in the image of God, with dignity and value and worth in her own right, but as property, as a possession, to be shown off like the rest of his other possessions. It's a selfish love. It's a selfish love that says, I want you for what you can do for me. I want you for how you make me feel. I want you for how you make others feel about me. I want them to see you and think good of me. It's a selfish love that says, when you stop giving me that thing that I want you for, then I'm done with you, and it's on to the next one. And for King Xerxes, it was actually on to the next 100, because he has a harem. He has a royal harem, which some of you know that word, some of you don't. But it's basically, a, a, in that time, a group of women who, who were part of the, the king's palace and community whose only purpose for being a group was to serve the king's every wish and desire, to please the king. And I'm not going to get crass, but everything, including everything, whenever he called upon them, he could do whatever he wanted. This is the kind of man that we're learning about in King Xerxes. It's not just on to the next one, it's on to the next 100. In the story, what I'm trying to get at in the story is Xerxes' love is selfish. It's based only on what he wants and what will make him happy. You guys see that? So she refuses, and what, how does he respond? You know what, Vashti, you're right. I was wrong. I was drunk. I was in front of my friends. I, I was so wrong. I'm so sorry. Nope. <laughs> sorry, but that's not the answer. That's not what he did. What does it say? He burned with anger. He got furious. His ego gets the best of him. He doesn't say, oh, you know what, I was wrong. He says, what can we do to her legally? That's what goes in the story. He calls basically their version of the Supreme Court. Um, instead of nine, it's seven, and they're judges, and they have a lifetime appointment, and they're supposed to be masters in Persian law and masters in culture. And he says, what are we going to do about her refusing, um, refusing my power? refusing my decree. And so he talks to them, and 
Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter today. I encourage you to read it for yourself this week. Um, but he talks to them, and the advisors are coming up with different ideas, and, and one of them says, you know what? What she's done, it's not just between you and her. It's, it's the whole kingdom, and everyone's going to see that the queen didn't obey the king, and now all the women everywhere. <laughs> and so he says, I have a great idea, king. You should make a law. This is, gonna, this is going somewhere great, right? I can feel the tension in the room. Um, you should make a law. You should make a decree. And, and what happens in those days is that um, for, for King Xerxes, when he makes a decree, it becomes law instantly. And they don't have the internet. People, they don't have TV. People don't learn about it that way. What they have is the, the world-renowned postal system of the Persian kingdom with dispatches that have specific roots. It's actually um, the U.S. postal system back in the day was very much based off of the same principles as the Persian postal system. It was that advanced. So as soon as he says a decree, even if he's drunk, um, that can become a law, and then it goes out all over the kingdom. And uh, Herodotus, the father of history, actually describes that Persians, it was often for them to be drinking while discussing matters of state, but I'm digressing and getting into non-points. Um, anyways, so he sends them out with this decree. In verse 21 and 22, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukhan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native language. Now, maybe some of you guys are like, you know what? I like Xerxes. I bet Persia was a pretty cool place. And uh, I think some of you women are like, oh, it's expletive. It's deleted. <laughs> what? What is going on? And I know, I know, I know that we, that we are, um, we're taught in Ephesians 5 to submit out of reverence for Christ. And there is something to be said for husbands loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands. But the, the wording here is ruler. It's, rule, rule is the same word that's used in the curse in Genesis 3. When God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And here's the decree that Xerxes says. Every man will be ruler of his own household. So much power. So much power. More than anyone alive on earth at the time. And yet the irony that he does, this is how he uses it. You, do you even notice that he tells every man in his kingdom to do something that he can't, he can't even do? He uses his power not to serve others, but he uses his power to make servants out of others for himself, starting with Vashti and extending it through his whole kingdom. He uses his power to make others serve him. And so maybe you're enjoying this, the history lesson. I don't know, maybe I should have been a history teacher. Um, or maybe you're sitting here and you're, you're listening and, and you're just thinking, this is dark. This is dark. This is hollow. This is 
There's an emptiness in this story so far. Is this all there is? Is this all we've got? We've got this incredible kingdom, but is all we've got to show for it just wealthy, powerful, perverted man who thinks he's God? And then he's going to die, and then there's going to come up another wealthy, powerful, perverted man who thinks he's God? Is that it? Is he going to use his power for himself? Is this human history? Is it just a long line of the same thing? And, and before I go further, I want to say it's very easy for us to look at Xerxes and for us to see, well, that was wrong, and that was way off, and that was horrible, and that's deplorable. But I'm going to suggest something that I believe is harder for us to see is that for all the differences between us and Xerxes, for all the distance, the 2,500 years between us and Xerxes, for the difference in money and power from him and us and what we'll ever know, our hearts are shockingly similar. Shockingly similar to Xerxes, and I mean us, men and women. Xerxes lived for his glory. We live for our glory. Just in our natural state. Whether it's our possessions, where it's we want to have the car that people look at and say, oh yeah, I can, see, oh yeah, he's really doing good. Or we want to have the, the apartment or the house that people show up and we're like, oh dang, I didn't know that, yeah. Or maybe it's not possessions, maybe it's our achievements. We want the people in our field to know that we are it, that we have succeeded, that we have achieved, that we have accomplished something. Or maybe it's not our possessions or our achievements. Maybe it's just our life experiences. I don't care if I ever own anything, but I am going to travel to the next place. And I'm going to post a picture of it so that you know that I experienced this or I had this great meal and you will see the glory that is my life. (laughs) You guys know what I'm talking about? Social media, if you don't believe we live for our own glory, just look at social media. If you were an alien that showed up on this planet, you would be like, why do they have plastic metal boxes that they point at themselves and then share with other people so they can look at their plastic metal boxes and be jealous? Okay, getting off the soapbox, right? Guilty. Guilty. We live for our glory. We, li- we love selfishly. If anyone's going to be honest with me, we are very tempted and often do and, and pervasive in our society say, I love you for what, how you make me feel. Mm-hmm. I love you for what you do for me. And when you stop doing that, then I'm no longer obliged to keep loving you. We live in a state where every divorce is technically no fault, which means you don't have to prove any reason for wanting a divorce other than wanting it. I had a conversation with someone not connected with this church a few weeks ago, and this person was leaving their spouse, saying, I just don't want to be with them anymore. As a culture, we turn people into objects, not people made in the image of God, not people with a soul, not people with inherently as much dignity and value as us or anyone else, but as objects. 
and we judge. We can, we, can, we can look at Xerxes and we can judge him for his harem, but have we looked at our modern day and judged ourselves for our hard drives? Looked up some statistics on, um, on porn. Did you know that one in five mobile searches is pornographic? Did you know that $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second? 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are encouraging, accepting, or neutral when talking with friends about porn. Yeah, we can judge you, Xerxes, for your harem, but look at our phones. Look at our computers. Look at what we do with people, with God's creation. We love selfishly. We'd rather rule than serve. We'd rather, we're the master of our own destiny. If it is to be, it's going to be me. I'm going to do it. And I've got to use whatever resources or people or whatever to get my goals and my dreams done because it's about me living my life. We do the same thing. And here's the thing. When we live, I know we don't always do that all the time. But what I do know is that's in each one of our hearts. And when we look at Xerxes, like I said, there's a bunch of differences, but the main difference is money and power. Because with all the money and the power in the world and no one to tell us what to do, we would live in much the same way. And when we live like that, it is hollow. And it is empty. And our life just becomes this hollow shell. And we start asking, what is the point of this? What is the point of living for my own glory? What is the point of a love that is only meant to make me happy? A love... Hmm. What is the point of being first? What is the point of living for my ambitions? People in our culture are wondering that today. People who have everything they want are wondering, what is the point? Is there anything beyond this? Is there more to life than this? Living for your own glory and for people to see how good I am. Is there more to than that? What is missing? And what I would say today, it's not a what that's missing, it's a who that's missing. It's God. God. And we haven't seen him yet in the pages of this book. He's not painted vividly, but he's, there's the silhouette of him. In a painting, you see all the details and it comes to you, but a silhouette is what's not there and you see the same thing. And even though we haven't seen God, here's the good news. We know that this is not the only book in the Bible. <laughs> it's one book and a storyline that leads to who? A better king. It leads to King Jesus, here's the good news about Xerxes. There's another king. <laughs> Above Xerxes, there's another king seated on another throne, a king named Jesus. And Jesus is our king. Amen? Amen. And unlike Xerxes, he didn't just invite us all to sit around him. He got off his throne. And he first came down to dwell among us. 
Jesus is our king who, John 17 says, he had all glory with God before the world ever began, before there was a creation. He had more glory than Xerxes could ever think about. All glory. And yet what did he do? He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our king, King Jesus, 2 Corinthians 8 says that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus had all glory and yet set it aside to have you. Jesus is our king. Instead of loving selfishly, he loves selflessly. Instead of loving us only when we please him, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we had it all together, Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is our king. Instead of using his power to make others serve him, he came to earth to serve us. He's talking to his disciples in Mark 10. He called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the King Jesus that we serve. That's the King that we serve. That's the only King that can set us free from the Xerxes-type kings in this world and the Xerxes' tendencies in our own hearts. And when we know him, when we know what he did, how he used his glory, how he loved you, how he, whew, how he served us. When you know that, you bring him your emptiness, you bring him your hollowness, you bring him your sin, you bring him your selfishness, you bring him your shame, you bring him your arrogance, and you exchange it for forgiveness and love. You're set free. You're set free from an empty life. You're set free from a life that can get no better than yourself. You're set free from a hollow way of life. He changes you from within. We become people who live not for our own glory, but for God's glory. Everything we do, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We become people who love not because of what other people do for us, 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We become people who use our power, whatever power we have, to serve.
not to make people serve us, but to serve other people. And we're sent out. We're sent out to share this message. There is more to life than this. There is more to life than the Xerxes of the past or the Xerxes of this present world. There is more to life than living for your own glory and loving as it suits you and chasing your own ambitions. There's more to life. Jesus has set us free, and he's king. But he's the good king. He's the good king. There's more than a hollowed-out shell that you call life. There's more than a meaningless existence where you keep wondering, what's the point? We have a better purpose because we have a better king. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. We're sent out to love, to live for God's glory, to love selflessly, and to serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the better king. Thank you that you are the only king who can deliver us, who can meet the greatest needs of our souls. Thank you that you are the king who has come to set us free. Lord, and we find that freedom in your grace that you gave up your life for us on the cross, that you were buried when we should have been buried, and you rose again so that we will rise again. Lord, it's all for your glory. It's all by your love. It's all because you've served us, and we want to serve you forever and ever, and we want to serve you today. We want to serve you tomorrow. We want to serve you this week. God, I pray for everyone that's been here who's heard it. I pray for those who've been hurt, by the misuse and abuse of power. I pray for those who have been forever scarred by those who have, who have not been, who have not acted as good kings, who have not used whatever authority they have for good. God, I pray that you would set us free, that you would break chains today. God, and in our own hearts, I pray that you would illuminate the places that we may not even want to look at, the places where we mirror Xerxes' actions in our own lives, on our own many kingdoms, on our own scale. We're just doing the same thing, just a different century. God, I pray that you'd forgive us. Help us to seek your forgiveness today. Help us to believe and accept that forgiveness. Accept the new identity that you've given us as daughters and sons, as servants of the king, of the kingdom that will never end. God, we know that Xerxes is not around. He thought he was the king of kings, but he's dead and gone. His throne no longer exists. His palace is in ruins. But you, you, God, (laughs) heaven and earth will pass away, but your kingdom will never pass away. Your words will never pass away. Your throne, you are seated on your throne. And though it seems like you're absent, you're present. Though we may not be able to see you, we know you're at work. You're working your perfect plan through imperfect people. You're holding out hope through the gospel and you're holding out hope in us today, Jesus. God, I pray that that hope would be released in this congregation, that every person under the sound of my voice would look to you and see the true king, see the only one who's worthy to sit on the throne of our lives, God. 
And we would bow before you and worship. Take these next few moments. Inform us. Shape us. God, do surgery on our hearts. Shine a spotlight in dark areas and change us. We ask by the Holy Spirit. Do the work that we can't do, Lord. We rely on you for it and we trust you to do it. And make it last in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen.